On the following episode, we discuss sensitive topics around illicit drugs, sexual abuse, and family violence. This may not be suitable for all listeners. So the National Party <laughs> wanted to have a community hui on gangs, but they went to the rich area. Like, it was exclusive out there, Perfume Point. Goodness me, I don't even know if I can afford a meal out there. And they were out there at this beautiful restaurant, and it was... So I invited a whole lot of gang members. <laughs> How did that go down? It was really cool. They got to hear a few more words from us, that's for sure, about yeah. what we're trying to do to implement change. But at the same time, they don't support the funding. National Party, you on change? Support some funding that helps make real change because none of your fellas' programmings are working. I don't think they've got any real ideas about it. We should just get rid of gangs. We should just cancel gangs. How's like, that going to happen? I don't, know. I don't think you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Today we caught it all with Sheree Kurarangi. Sheree is a bridge between the community services and hard to reach Fano. She has strong familial ties to the mongrel mob and uses this to connect and engage with vulnerable people. Sheree works to break the cycle of abuse and poverty with Ears of Tane Trust, providing crisis accommodation and supervised access visitation. Kia ora, Sheree. Thank you so much for coming for this korero on Revolving Door Syndrome. We're so happy to have you on here. Thank you. Cool opportunity to be asked to come on board and and korero with you. A few months ago, whenever it was, when I saw you on the interview on the news, I just thought, this woman, she's amazing. (laughs) Look at this work that she's doing for these whanau. Like, I have to talk to her. So I just want to hear a little bit about you and like your background and where you came from and all that. Would you mind sharing? Sure. Look, I've been with Alfano for a very long time. I'm what we call third generation in terms of our age group inside our gang whanau and families. We have five generations of gang whanau currently living in New Zealand today. I am based in the Hawke's Bay, but did a lot of my training and internship in the Waikato. I see. Under our Waikato Kingdom leadership. And so have come home to share the good news and help support our families get back to where we need to be, which is living healthy, meaningful, engaging lives and contributing effectively to both community and society as a whole. What is your background? Do you like train anything specifically or is this all the sort of on-the-job training? Yeah, so I trained in whānau water navigation at Kauai House. But before that, I was doing a diploma in business management and did that. Love my admin so I can do the admin side of the mahi. That, that takes care of all the necessary requirements when it comes to helping out whānau with their paperwork and then even legal admin so I can help them with stuff like affidavits. I also did computing, admin and IT stuff. I can fix things, which is great because <laughs> I need that when you're poor, girl. <laughs> And you got to borrow or fix a laptop to make things work for you around your whare. So being unfunded means I've got to try and find all the resources and skills that I can in a way that's affordable and accessible. 
So the things I create are in terms of Fano, like Hati Haura. Hati Haura was a project that the Waikato Mongrel Mob worked with the DHB in Waikato. We created a relationship of sorts so that we could bring together an event of some kind together. What we would do, we would have all the free services that are available in the community that are paid for by the DHB and or outside organisations like smear checks, mammograms, dental house, smoking cessation, the works. Have it all in the one venue and invite the whole mongrel mob along. <laughs> well, 334 families turned up. We got them to register as they came in as well in different whānau groups and they could go around with a passport and they get a health passport and get things checked out. And look, we found out one brother was that, you know, he had hepatitis B and he'd never known that all this time. And we had a nanny who'd never had a mammogram and that in itself. We had five wahine sign up on the mammogram registrar that obviously were never going to be previously engaged. Okay, and engagement's a huge process. Our people have isolated themselves because of the stigma, because of who we are, because we're not liked. If we're not liked, why would we seek help? From those projects, I created others that worked in with bringing Fano home from jail and keeping them from jail. So I took in wahine, particularly, much easier to work with. (laughs) (laughs) I love our sisterhood out there. They really are amazing because they are the hull of the waka when it comes to mongrel Yeah. They really are. Brothers are going away to jail left and centre, and who's topping up that P113s? You know, who's taking care of things at home with your babies and your whanau and looking after your mum? Brother, you're in jail. The only person you can look after in there is yourself. And this is not where I want our people to go. That might be the government's housing plan for us. Shit, it feels like it. <laughs> Many families aren't engaging healthcare or education early or consistently enough, and that's really evident, especially when it comes to our children, our tamariki. So why do you think that is? Intergenerationally, you can take things back to, say, 1960s, where 98% of state homes in New Zealand were Māori males. So what kind of parenting ship or leadership where they actually taught in these homes to the effect that they will come out to be gang members. And intergenerationally, that's had a huge impact, as you can see from the State Commission inquiry and now the Waitangi Tribunal inquiries as well. We're talking about Fano, who, like myself here, I've been through 18 different homes. I can't say all the homes were safe either. And at the age of 17, you're out there to work the world out on your own. Jeez, that's crazy. So you were basically under the care of, I guess they were called Child, Youth and Family back then, right? They were SIPFA back then. They've changed their name a few times, but they were SIPFA. Children, Young Persons and Their Families Association. Doesn't it sound amazing? Different name, same shit really, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) See, this is where I'm now meeting with the CEO and the Ministerial Review Board for Oranga Tamariki because I can have insight that would help make great change. Their lives are better for children that are under S101s. I suppose if you've never been through the system, how can you really understand, especially if you're not listening to the people who have been through the system, such as yourself? I said the exact same thing to the government. They tried to make a gang action plan, for goodness sake. Hilariously, they didn't ask any gang member for any input, nor did they ask any Māori organisation for that matter. So how was this action plan whole of government when you've only got three government agencies trying to hammer people down? Gangs aren't seen by community and society as a family. They're seen as the worst of the worst people that the media, others in the community who don't really have any engagement with us make and assume Mm. about us. And that comes from statistics and data that come from two government sectors. This is exactly why organisations have been developed and started from myself and others like Mongrel Mob started a charitable trust while they were in jail. They wanted 
Fano leadership and change in our families. They didn't want to keep coming back to jail. Now, that was in 1993 in Mount Eden Jail. And that came from seven different leaders from around the Mongrel Mob Nation. This is what they wanted to do. They wanted to create change. It's really hard to create change when you haven't got real support to make that change happen. There's dire statistics in New Zealand, isn't there, for incarceration rates for Māori men and women. Māori wahine, we are the most incarcerated Indigenous person in the world. That's outrageous. Many of these crimes can actually be handled through AOD services and management, but you'll find there are limited resources for wahine to just detox so they can get into rehab. This is just an example. You have the highest sewage rate of mess coming through that sewage water in a little town of Wairau. It's tiny, right? But you've got no detox services there for whānau. You haven't got a detox whare. You haven't got the kind of support that whānau need to come away from the stuff, so they're going to keep doing, you know, crime. You've got people wanting to create programs there from within our mongrel Mall families. Sister Jamie was really pushing it out there to try and get some support. I even went there because the council and others want to create a methamphetamine strategy. Now, how are you going to do that without talking to those who have been addicted to meth, without talking to those who have sold meth? And I'm telling you now, they're not going to get that kind of data from anywhere else but us. We did an interview with 86 people, and those kind of people spoke to us. We're not just going to hand that data over. Wish you's all well with our people's health. We want to be integrally involved. We need to be teaching ourselves to do these things so this stuff starts happening intergenerationally. What is Mungrobob doing to try and reduce people even starting taking drugs, especially methamphetamine? By getting the whole whānau involved in the, say, one member's rehabilitation will have huge impact on that whānau because they can already see what the negative consequences of the drug taking are. I guess the questions that people have are, like, where are the drugs coming from? Is there, like, a stance that your chapter have on even just the provision of methamphetamine? We don't support anything like it. And I can speak for myself and many others when we say we're very anti-meth. Okay, because we already know what the harm's doing. We're on the other side trying to get people off. I actually attended the Police Strategy and Research Conference in Wellington there at the Parirua Police Training College. And I could absolutely tell you where it's coming. It's coming in from overseas. Now, how is it getting in through transnational crime? It's not just popping up out of nowhere. And uh, all of these, all of these outside influences make heavy temptations for anybody, not just a gang member. I mean, it sure looks like an easy life and it looks like we're doing a lot of it. We're probably just the ones getting caught out a lot. <laughs> There's so much more going on. We're the easy scapegoat target. We're brought up at every election period. We're never supported. Loved hearing everybody complain about us for years. <laughs> they didn't do anything anyway. And when we do try to do something, they're not going to support it. But we're going to do it anyway. Our people are counting on us. You know, my bro calls me queen of the muck all the time because I'm in there with my crown on digging in the dirt to dig us all out. Queen of the muck. so what do you think are like the keys to helping these whanau with meth addiction or other drugs providing a support base that where they can be welcomed and feel welcomed where they can feel like their change is important to others and it really is you get one crack addict free of crack and i'm telling you that makes a huge impact over the lifespan of the community so what do you think is wrong with how things are being approached at the moment? It's, there's no wairuatanga in it. There's no spirituality. There's no essence of being able to bring people hope. When you look at the statistics, we look like crap. <laughs> <laughs> 
people do a lot of complaining about us, but they ain't doing anything really positive <laughs> about us or with us. We can report okay? and report the statistics, but if we don't do anything about it. Yeah. So see, like, here's another thing that I'm doing. Like, mothers are losing connection with their children. And so I'm created a space here. This is where I actually am right now. I'm in a facility that we've got the Nafano or Manguru Fari here in Napier. And it's not a pad, it's a Farinui. And here we look after women and children. We provide services. We're like a bit of a community hub and we do all colours, one love. <laughs> Everybody's welcome here. Red, white, blue, purple, green. We got it all. <laughs> now, um, we do things like providing supervised access visitation facilities. So we've gone through inviting Oranga Tamariki along, letting them know what we do. And I'm a whangai auntie in a sense. And I have the mum here. And then there's a room here where she can stay overnight. And she can spend good quality time with her children. She's able to cook them a meal. And I'm telling you now, I'm the only facility in the whole of New Zealand that does that for supervised access. Every other facility will give them an hour, maybe two hours a week. And that's it. It's mostly an outdoor venue. If it's raining, you've got a library, which I've seen so many people complain about, which sucks. Or we've got to fork out for an indoor venue. And access to see your children for one hour is $69. If you're currently on a job seeker and you don't have the support of legal aid or a lawyer and services, you just won't get to see your kids. Heaps of and that just fee, give that $69 up. fee, where does that go to? That goes to the supervised access facility like Bernardo's or Birthright. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to say their name, so you might have to squeak those out. Okay, so just the $69, it goes to supervised access facility. Yeah, and that's a subsidised rate. Otherwise, full rate is 130 Oh my gosh. So you've already you've got these families who are most likely to be impoverished to end up in this situation. You're going to punish them again. And if I suspect that if they don't do these sort of visits or these supervised access visits, they probably look like bad parents for That's not right. spending that time with their kids. And feel rejected and build resentment. And then later get into drug habits and the cycle begins again. Oh, You know, every time our kids mess up, you know... They're in the courts and then it's their parents trying to pay reparation instead of actually trying to do something positive. Everything's so punitive. You understand? It's punitive crap. There's no resolution. This is just keeping the state paid. They'd rather pay $113,000 a year to keep you in jail for a year. If you gave that to a family to better their lives, I guarantee you'd have a much better impact. True story. In fact, I'm like squeaking out the synopsis idea for television where you give a whanau $113,000 a year and see what they can do with themselves. That's the price of uh, holding an inmate in jail. Yeah, I think it's crazy that we have this system where all we want to do is lock people up. Like We're like, yes, punish them, punish them for doing the bad thing. But sure, it's good to have prisons to punish people to try and stop people from doing... Keep them out of society and actually build some reformation. If prisons aren't there to also help people be better on the other side, then what is the point? The guys in, that are actually working at the prisons and things like that will still get paid. The ones who are managing <laughs> everything, that, 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 that's what matters. They even tell you on your way out, see you next month. That's, yeah. That's dark, man. That's dark. They don't want people to better themselves. Here's a classic example. So we wanted, we're doing these Waitangi Tribunal hearings that are on Manawahine, right? And some of our clients are in jail. Some of the state inquiry clients were in jail, but they weren't allowed to see their evidence be presented because it just wasn't important enough. We're trying to get that remedied now so that we can stream things like the State Commission inquiry in jails where whānau, who are the most affected, can see it. 
so they can see that there is something being done out here for them. Some of them, it's their own evidence, and they don't get to present it when they're incarcerated. Somebody else, like a lawyer, has to present it on their behalf, yeah? They may not voice it the same way they do, and that's what some of our whānau felt like. Oh, I tried to have a voice only to lose it again. And we're talking about our stories coming out of the abuse that some of the whānau have suffered while they are in and resonating. You've got all these whānau that have been through similar experiences, and they will cluster together. They will cluster together for support. How do you think they met each other? They're all in homes. (laughs) Yeah. I have one story that I've actually got in written affidavit evidence where he was in the home and the mongrel mob came and picked him up. Boom, shakalaka. They saved him from the abuse he was getting in there, that's for sure. He was 12. He was in jail for murder by the time he was 17. So, yeah, we certainly know where the extremities are from our whanos. And those were very much whanau that have gone through the 80s style. And then the 70s and the 80s were really hard out. They were exceptionally violent. You're talking about post-traumatic stress disorders and things that have only been diagnosed in what, late 1990s, 2000s and coming through. Now it's more accepted to have BPD, MPD and anxiety. Our whanau are only just coming to the realisation of what that could mean for them in terms of healing. We just never really been adequately or appropriately engaged by services. Here's a little example from my own experience. I saw in my Plunkett book that I had ulcers on my vagina, a.k.a. NSTI. The doctor's advice was to make sure the child gets plenty of water to drink. Not stop raping her, just make sure I get plenty of water to drink. My goodness, how old were you? Three. My goodness. It's a Plunkett book, so under five. And this was registered in my Plunkett book. Well done, New Zealand. You really do the awesome care of babies in care. So this is what I use a lot in terms of explaining what life conditions are for a gang member in New Zealand. So from the moment they're conceived, their life conditions drop significantly. Why? Because mummy's probably smoking and drinking, okay? She's probably doing a little bit of meth when she can afford it. And she's also probably in a violent relationship, on and off. That's the reality. She's also probably living transient and or homeless. So she's got nowhere to even have this baby. There are heaps of pregnant women in emergency housing right now that are looking at potential uplifts from birth. So we've got this factor going on for them already. Here, they're zero to five. So they're going to miss out on doctors and wild child visits. They're going to miss out on immunizations and dental care. Why do you think that is? Because they're in emergency housing and they're getting shipped around from place to place. Worst of all, they're probably going to miss out on early childhood education because it's hard to connect with an ECE centre when you're suddenly living in this motel for seven days is the minimum that the MSD has to provide you. Seven days. So they've got to keep reapplying. Early childhood education is really great for like development of language and social and stuff like that. If these kids aren't getting their ECE, that's again another thing that's against them in terms of like development. And then by the time they go to school, they're going to yep. be behind, aren't they? So here, this is where they're at Rangatahi, right? So they are. They're going to fall out of school. They're going to get into some petty crimes or worse, smashing grabs here. They're going to get into some drug habits as well. A bit of drug experimentation and sexual experimentation going on there too. But worst of all, here in New Zealand, we're fourth in the OECD for suicide. So we've got to lose them there. All right? And I can guarantee you right now that in those suicides, 
if you did it all the factors together, you would see Oranga Tamariki were involved in a significant percentage of those lives, as were government agencies. So that's telling us there they aren't working. You're a young adult, and they've probably already had some kids by then, eh? Many have probably been uplifted already. I've got one mum, she's not even 30 yet, but her first three boys are uplifted. She hasn't seen them for two years. And are they uplifted, like, within whānau or completely oh, non? shipped around a wee bit, and she just can't, if they're with whānau, she can't see them. So how whānau is that? Where's the plan for engagement with mum? And they need to include these in Oranga Tamariki's plans. <laughs> but there's not enough planning for everybody to be involved. Just got to keep going down into downward spirals till here, where the average life expectancy of a gang member is only 45 years. So what others and I are trying to do is make some significant change. We try to impact there, as before the young adults, when they've got little babies in their care, so we can help support them there. Also supporting them there when they're hapu, before they have these babies. So we're taking out this trying to get other whānau to work in with our rangatahi in terms of rangatahi programming, well, we definitely need more support there. This is another example. Our kids were falling out of school and they were just hanging out at the pad. So I said, oh, why don't we turn the pad into a school? <laughs> cool idea, eh? Our kids weren't going to school. And then so I tried to get them enrolled into the correspondence school. And we thought, hey, look, some of us are pretty onto it. Let's give it a go. We'll start teaching our kids. And, you know, Sister Paula, she's so amazing. She's got a master's degree in education and helped us set up the curriculum and everything to support our rangatahi. Sister Saf was involved. The mums got in there. We had purpose. We had meaning. We're going to give our rangatahi the support that they're not finding in school. So we're going to homeschool them together at the pad. What a massive idea. First of all, the Ministry of Education wouldn't give exemptions for our kids. They weren't going to the school and they were going to do their parents for truancy and charge them fines and all this other crap, but they wouldn't give them an exemption so they could come to our school. How stupid is that? Why wouldn't they let them do correspondence school? Correspondence school needed the exemption, and then the exemption just wasn't going to happen from the Ministry of Education. They wanted a whole lot of rigmarole, the fact that these kids hadn't been going to school in the first place. I couldn't see the problem. The thing was the high schools were getting funding for them to be there, but the kids aren't actually there. That's how it works, hun. So the kids weren't going to school. Yeah, but the school's still getting them, the money and they're yeah. not going to release them as students. So and the Ministry of Education can't give them an exemption, which means they couldn't come to the Mungra Mall pad where they were hanging out anyway and get educated. So they weren't getting educated so they weren't because they weren't going to school and then you gave them an alternative option to educate them outside of school and they were yep. like, no, even though you could still educate them even like a bit. My it goodness. gets better. It gets better. The drama continues. So episode two started with we finally got the exemptions, okay? So we got the schools to write letter. We pulled up all their truancy. We gave them all their court stuff even because one of the kids just was at the shop stealing instead of going to school, okay? He found other hobbies and entertainment. And some of them were just stealing cars, for goodness sake. So obviously they were setting them up. That's how we felt. We finally got the exemptions and the correspondent school wouldn't send us any supervisors or support teachers because we we're the mongrel mob pad. So we had to meet them at the local McDonald's. The McDonald's. How did that work out? The kids love the feed. <laughs> Regardless of that, I had 25 students get their NCA level ones and two credits after having no formal qualifications. Amazing. And after that, did the Ministry of Education change their tag no, or anything like that? No. They wouldn't let us do the next step, which is set up a playgroup. They won't fund us. They don't want us to do it ourselves. We are the experts in our own condition, trust me. The fight in us to want to change and be better is huge. Allow us, like me, just running the supervised access visitation facility here. I'm not funded. 
we're working towards it. We're, we're heavily respected, that's for sure. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. You know, we do these every time the mums turn up. So I've got a mum coming today, so I'll pull one out. It's a um, urine drug test, and it'll tell me if she's had anything in the last 72 hours. So you've got to stay clean for three days before you come to visits. On top of that, if they're in the family court system or under OT, they'll do HFT or hair follicle tests as well. And this is how we help them stay clean and get clean. Whatever we can put together is empathetic, caring, humble people. What do people face when they are trying to detox off of something like methamphetamines? Well, a lot of the experiences I have... By the time they get to me, they're very broken. They're very broken. There's other things going on, so we call them multiple adversities. And they have a spectrum of adversities going on, so not just one agency is involved with their life. So they're not just dealing with things like oranga tamariki. They're dealing with the district courts and police, the justice system. They're also, say, under some heavy mental health issues, so they could be suicidal as well. So they come to me very broken. Um, the first thing that we do is we're just some of them don't even have clothes. They just come and what they're wearing on their back. We just take them in wholeheartedly. We give them refuge through that. They help to build their own redemption through their own suffering coming away from this stuff. A lot of sleeping is involved, which is the first requirement because the body's missed out on a lot. They're tired and then get real hungry. We make some wholesome meals here. I've had some really cool support because, you know, we're not funded, but we do get outside support from other different trusts and organisations that just believe in us. So we've seen the Manawa Order Trust and Manatu Order Trust here with our church whanau in Bay Vineyard. They've been massively supportive. Also looking at big companies like HelloFresh, supporting our mums by, like, there's a whole meal here for them to cook while they have supervised access. Amazing. And, you know, that's so awesome. Kai together with your whanau, that's... Yeah, you can't do that when you're in emergency housing either because, you know... No kitchen. It. There's not an oven in there. There's a microwave, maybe. I've heard stories from Fano, like when I'm working in the emergency department, and they are in emergency housing. They have two young children in this tiny one bedroom, like motel, hotel, whatever. And the two young children, you can't leave them unsupervised. That's and then right. they have to, like, they don't have a kitchen. So then they have to, like, bring their children with them to this other kitchen that's, I don't know, five floors below them or something like that. And I'm like, that's not what we should be providing for our whanau. How can they get ahead? And then because of where they had been living previously, they were perhaps living with Fano somewhere else, like a yep. 20, 30-minute drive away. And that's where their children were enrolled in schools and then having to like make that trek because the emergency housing they were given was a hotel in the CBD or something, which is not the best if you're like if your kids are enrolled in a school in the suburbs. Like it's just ah, oh, yeah, nothing exactly. is working. You know, I have one woman. She like has to do six zones of bus transport a day to get the kids to school from where she is. That's ninety dollars a week. That's crazy. Yeah, and like the accommodation supplement hasn't really gone up to match the pricing of housing at all. In the situation of a single parent who has, say, two children, how much do they get in terms of the benefit? 
Oh, I couldn't even think of the figures off the top of my head. <laughs> One woman that I helped us recently said $183.68 extra worth of costs because of the children's disabilities and just the management of trying to get all this information collated together and she wasn't on the right entitlement. Now, look, it really annoys me when you've got MSD workers who can clearly see that some of the situations that they don't know their own policies. I don't know. That's probably a training issue. I can't really put it on those workers themselves. To have me come in and explain to them that what a ministerial directive is and that this is the policy around disability allowances and this is what the children should be on instead of a temporary additional support benefit, okay? She shouldn't have to keep applying for these things when it's clear that it's a regular cost and it's based on medical needs, like pull-ups for an adult child. Oh, not adult child, like somebody eight nine. Things like these are all disability costs. And they're not funded by DHB at this time until he can get into the DHB services. They were in emergency housing somewhere else. They've been moved and moved. And that also makes it difficult for these children to keep in touch with medical help. Totally. They are required and enrolled in. You could be on the Gisborne East Coast list and then you've got to come to Hawke's Bay to live after a family violent incident in emergency housing. You're waiting again to get back on the list here at Hawke's Bay DHB. Just the odds are stacked against you, eh? Hard to get ahead. You need somebody who can navigate them through all these adversities and connect them to the right kind of services quickly and efficiently. You could be waiting months through the family court system to get to see your children. So, you know, what's a hopeless mother to do? She hasn't got anywhere to live. She doesn't qualify for emergency housing anymore because she's lost her kids. She's possibly sleeping in her car or worse. And that's it. She's got to wait for some kind of legal aid or something to happen for her to get to see her kids. And I'm here right here right now. That's what we have to be. That's the kind of impact we have to have. When somebody comes to you into the emergency department, you see them in a process that is very efficient and very quick. So that you can so you categorize them straight away. You triage them, yeah? That needs to happen with a lot of our people out here in the community in terms of social services. Because there are some that are at Extreme priority. I'm sorry. I was with a woman today who was raped in emergency housing. And it's... She's been waiting a year and moved around and moved around. And her children were there. And she doesn't get the kind of support she needs because she's gang affiliated. No one wants to know or it's our fault. This is why the reporting level is very low. We won't reach out for help. Because no one reaches back. No one cares. Look, the media and everyone cry at the Human Rights Commission coming to see us. And they go up in arms at him putting a koha down during a porphyry. I can tell you where they went. They went to food. (laughs) They're up in arms of organisations and health boards and people that support something like Kahukura and people get up in arms that we want to get people off meth. <laughs> they have no idea of the capacity it will take to make the kind of change they're expecting. And if they don't support it, we will never be able to complete it. I was reading about it and like we talk about the media and their response to these sorts of things and the general public can have a very knee-jerk reaction 
anything yeah. something to do with gangs is brought up. And so some of the responses when I talk to people about this is about, oh, you know, $3 million going towards this gang rehab program. And I can tell you right now, it was not taxpayer money. That money <laughs> came from drug busts. So in 2016, under the Official Information Act, I asked what they're doing with all the forfeiture and seizure assets and things like that. And there's millions of dollars going in there. And one bust, I think it was $205 million. And that was not a gang, uh, like ethnic gang, shall we say. That was not an ethnic gang bust. <laughs> that certainly wasn't a mongrel mob bust, I can tell you now. <laughs> But all that money's going back into supposedly to, you know, crime and drug harm prevention. And we queried that. So where exactly is that going? And there was going to this and going to that. And I was thinking, like, why can't it actually be coming back to Fano? It's called the Hypothecated Fund. And all I did was find out a little bit of information about it and see how it works and see how it's all put together and start sharing that information with our Fano so we could make use of that. Back to the Kahukura, like... $3 million, like, over a few years, like, it's really not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things because I feel like as soon as there's more than six zeros in a number, people are like, oh, it's like a huge pot of money. But, like, when we talk about, like, from a population level, we need to be talking about, like, hundreds of millions of dollars before I'm like, okay, we're making a big impact. Yeah. And so $3 million over a couple of years to try and do very much, like, fano centered spiritual program kind of thing that's actually going to help prevent future harm. And That's like right. we say, incarceration is very expensive. So if, if we could spend $3 million over a couple of years to stop, let's say, I don't know, 20, 30 guys, men or women, from being reincarcerated, that's a saving. It is. We have to start doing a lot of that healing from the inside. And from the inside also means working with our own people or having our people like me, Sister Paula, others that are effectively training themselves up. Sister Saf, she went out and got herself more qualifications so she could work with our whānau at Rangatahi and take, get them out of Orangatamariki. And she's, damn, she's awesome. And this is what we're doing. Sister Liz down in Wellington, she's doing massive works in the community and in the community hub that work directly into impacting our whānau for the better. And we're creating sustained positive change here. We're creating engagement from our whānau to organisations. Sometimes our whānau wouldn't come to the ED unless like, we were at absolute dire straits end. And you, that would be like a category one where you've got a stabbed up victim or somebody's been beaten within an inch of their life. We're trying to get in there before things get ugly. I feel like my experience with Māori and Pacifica patients, not even talking about gang-affiliated anybody, it's just Māori Pacifica people just in general, already present quite late. Already there's like that feeling of, oh, they don't want to present because they don't want to, one, they don't want to make a fuss. That's often what they say. They're often either forced by like family, by Fano to come in or yeah, like the lit and then when they do come, it's usually like quite late and I've, I'll have people who've had chest pain all night and then their partner has forced them to come in and that's them having rheumatic heart disease when they obviously had rheumatic heart disease when they were a kid but nobody's picked it up and now they've had rheumatic fever again and then they need like heart surgery and I'm like ah exactly (laughs) we come in at the extreme of ourselves that's why the life expectancy of our gang whanau in New Zealand is actually only 45 years that's crazy. What are the what are the reasons for that? Do you think drug overdose, suicide, just self neglect, lack of self care and love? 
and addictions have really cut that in, especially alcoholism. Alcoholism is a big one. If I know dying of type 4 liver cancers, breast cancers, they just don't get checked, cervical cancers. Sometimes it's at the very end that we find out what's wrong. Do you think that the best way to get positive change is from within gangs or do you think like the environment needs to change as well? You get the right people inside the gangs doing the right kind of things and connecting with those outside who want to come back. And, you know, we work hard to build the credibility and the acknowledgement that we deserve and the respect that we deserve from the work that we do. But it's about others believing in us too. Are you finding people that want to work with you? We're getting there, that's for sure. I think some of the things that I've already worked successfully have really given proven results of what is possible. But I think that a lot more people maybe need to know about it. That way they can support it easier or support it better. So you're obviously doing a lot of work with women and tamariki. Yeah. See, this morning's wahine felt like she didn't want to go into the ED department or get a rape kit done. It was a lot of work to try and make her feel safe enough to go. And just even that, that in itself is like really hard to do because especially if you're gang affiliated and it's just crushing, it really is. We managed to get some other whanau to come in and support. So with her nanny there, she went. But just to even be able to allow that or make that happen so she could do this. Well, I'm really glad that she had someone like you to help her. Thank you. So we're talking a lot about how we can help like wahine, mori and tamariki and all that. It sounds like they're often the victims of the system and victims of violence and abuse. So what can we do to help the Māori men to change their behaviours or trying to deal with their behaviours? Help support them to create similar things to what we do. And maybe some of the reason we get a little bit more support is because us wahine are here. And maybe we are the softer side or the friendly face of the mongrel mob. <laughs> I got caught once. <laughs> So we can be there, that opening face, but we need to create that kind of leadership in our men as well so that they can also be supported. One of our tāne has a massive idea about buying a small motel facility so that he can work programs inside those motels from brothers when they get out of jail. So instead of being in isolation on a bracelet stuck up on the hill somewhere where you're whānau, you can't even go and see them because that's out of your bounds or you're on a whereabouts condition. You can't see your mokopuna because all standard conditions include you can't see children under the age or be with children under the age of 16 without prior written approval stuff like that and, and that is due to like violence or something yeah, like that yeah because yeah. they've had a family violence history and we're trying to work on that as well without creating punitive measurements we're trying to build on family and what we want to do is actually do programming that the whole family can do together because quite often you'll see the the offenders I hate that word by the way they get the singular program you have to go on a dove course or as much love and respect as I've got for dove I think there's got to be family courses where the whole family come together on the course. Wānanga and programming are much better suited for our whānau. That's is why, where we can stay together a couple of days even, as a whole whānau, at a marae, learning family violence programming that, that you can mentor whānau to work together through these things instead of him going off to do an anger management course and what? Mm. They're just, they're learning something on paper because you need to be able to practice how to function within a whānau rather than in isolation right that's right we've got to breathe and live the word that we are trying to put into ourselves and if we want great change we need to be living and breathing that great change mm. and that's one of the things that we love about our whānau rehab is that the whole family are included the whole family get to learn what it's like for mum to come away from this addiction they will respect mum 
for her ability to, and strength to build herself up from the addiction, yeah? Sorry, it's so much, eh? There's a lot, yeah. I don't even know. I think we're going to have to have like more episodes, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I want to touch on as well, so kids and ram raids, all that violence and like the rangatahi and rangatahi who I guess they're being let down by education and society and all that and they are turning to joining gangs. Or even creating their own too. Or creating their own gangs. So I guess the way I see it, the cat's out of the bag. Gangs are there. Or like you say, people are going to create We're not going anywhere. We've been here for the last 54 years. We ain't yeah. going anywhere. <laughs> I was talking to another Tane Māori, Carlton Irving, who's a paramedic and medical student training to be a doctor at the moment on yeah. a previous episode. And he's talking about like an earn-as-you-learn like program. That's how he got into paramedicine at the beginning. But what about getting more earn-as-you-learn programs like for, you know, wahine and tane Māori and healthcare and stuff like that, or healthcare or social work? Yeah. One of the things our brothers have been trying to work with is an organisation called Building Construction, Construction and Industry Training Organisations, reaching out to our brothers to learn the trades and get certification in construction and stuff so they can actually move on to jobs. So that started to happen with some of our tiny men and I just think that it needs to be supported more because it isn't really we're still on our own steed we're unfunded but lord forbid is it that they give us funding <laughs> yeah <laughs> who knows yeah. what the reaction from the public's going to be when we try to do that you know so people have to be open to it all right yeah. if you want change you have to be open to the idea of whānau like us getting funding to help make that change happen Otherwise, people have the stupid idea we're going to use drug money. We are from the Hypothecated Fund. <laughs> <laughs> My partner sent me this like article and a headline is about the National Party basically accusing these drug rehab facilities as just being gang pads kind of thing. And I'm sure you probably They've have seen come to all sorts of They've things. They've never gone to any of them. I've invited them here heaps. Have you? <laughs> Yeah, they never came. I had I'd to love turn to visit. up and gate crash one of their hui. So the National Party <laughs> wanted to have a community hui on gangs, but they went to the rich area. Like it was exclusive out there, Perfume Point. Goodness me, I don't even know if I can afford a meal out there. And they were out there at this beautiful restaurant, and it was. So I invited a whole lot of gang members, <laughs> and we gate crashed the National Party. Oh, well, how did that go down? It was really cool and they got to hear a few more words from us, that's for sure, yeah. about what we're trying to do to implement change. But at the same time, they don't support the funding. National Party, you want change? Support some funding that helps make real change because none of your fellas' programmings are working. I don't think they've got any real ideas about it, how they're going to take care of us, how they're going to sort us out. Good grief. Just help us fix ourselves. Oh, National Party, at least come and visit <laughs> before you make such rash statements. Because we're doing like a lot of cool work here and I hope to see you all soon. A lot of their idea is like, no, we should just get rid of gangs. We should just cancel gangs. How's like, that going to happen? I don't, know. I don't think you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. I think a lot of people have reservations about working yeah, with gangs. Yeah, you know what they because... love to spout the statistics about increased membership? Sure. I'll absolutely agree with that. There is increased membership. What else is less of? Prohibited weapons. There's less serious crimes. These smash and grabs are very, um, I want to know how many of those young people had Oranga Tamariki history in their background. They bet you all those boys have been involved with Oranga Tamariki and the police previously in their lives. Now what have they, those two organisations that are so well funded, what have they done to change these boys? But what happened? They're doing a massive smash and grab. 
So how many of the women that come through your services, how many of them have had prior involvement with Oranga Tamariki? I've already worked that out. It's 91.7%. Also, a lot of them have had involvement with probations. All the issues with health and education and going through the courts. I haven't even started talking to you about that, the whole court process. You can't get a, you can't go pick up a legal aid form at the courthouse anymore. You have to have access to the internet and all sorts of other things and then be able to print it out for yourself. That in itself is a hindrance to our people. I don't even have a printer. Like, how do people do that? They come to me. Auntie Cherie with the printer. <laughs> if people want to find out more about like the mahi that you're doing or any of your sisters are doing, where can they find this information? Thanks to you doing the interview. Probably you is a good start. <laughs> I suppose I should get some... More websites up or something. Yeah. I've only got my personal Facebook page and stuff like that. Because you get accosted for promoting gang stuff and you can have your page shut down. Right. So, yeah, it's a little bit difficult <laughs> to say promote the work that we're doing. We've got about four and a half thousand followers on TikTok. Does that count? <laughs> well, what is your TikTok name? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm Shuri Kudadungi. Anyway. Okay, maybe people can follow you <laughs> on your TikTok. There's some stuff in there about what I do kind of thing. I put a little bit of stuff up because I actually want to work with our rangatahi that are all over that field. In fact, I see a lot of mamai there on TikTok as well in terms of our whanau. And it's a good way to connect with our young people and be support for them. One, one final question, Cherie. What is your favourite ice cream flavour and why? I really like coffee-flavoured ice creams, all types oh, of coffee-flavoured ice creams. Yeah, because I'm a big fan of iced coffee and stuff. And it's like an iced coffee, a creamy, filling treat, and a pack-me-up all-in-one. Yeah, win-win-win all round. And the tamariki probably don't like that coffee ice cream, no, so you're just no, like, oh, it's like my yeah, one condolences treat. to the children. No, it's just an adult ice cream, actually. Sometimes they're like little sliced almonds. Oh, yummy, yummy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Cherie. It was really, really good having this all with you. Yeah, you're most welcome. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to tiriti your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.